This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I hope, like me, you had a good weekend and spent it absolutely suitcased. Well, I prized open the door my state-sponsored 34-bottle wine fridge, let the cheese board breathe, and queued up to have a go on Carrie Johnson's Lazy Susan. Uh, less of that, I think, uh, throughout the rest of the episode. In fact, coming up on today's episode, we're looking at scientists with the news that Jonathan Van Tam is to step out of the spotlight and return to his microscope. We're going to hear about the impact of the pandemic on the experts we turned to, from the surge of media requests to the deluge of abuse and threats, which put some of our brightest and best speaking out in public. That's coming up later in the episode. But as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachey. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Um, so without getting... We don't necessarily rehearse everything about parties... Uh, as that has been, I feel like we're sort of at the place now that everyone knows there were parties. We know he was at them. And there's a question of whether or not that's only going to cost him his job. Is Operation Save Big Dog and Operation Red Me is re-announcing nonsense about uh, trying to stop migrants crossing the channel and shutting down the BBC? Is that going to save him? Do you think, maybe? No, no, it's not. I mean, I have to say part of me now longs to give uh, Boris a rueful auntly hug and tell him that the game is up. You know, you've done some useful things and some things which weren't useful, but it's okay to go. Just don't wait until your party knifes you, because they will, because it's what they do. As for the tsunami of dead cats hurled on the table, I mean... They are, by and large, completely absurd, and it's such an obvious thing to do. I'm surprised governments ever do it to try and cover up sort of scandals. They think are minor scandals with huge announcements. It won't work. It never does. What do you think, uh, Rachel? I mean, there's obviously the, there's pressure. There's been pressure. You know, get, let's get on the front foot, uh, Prime Minister. Which is maybe that's what they're trying to do. Well, I mean, there is a sort of genuinely underlying problem that Boris Johnson doesn't really know what he wants to do with power. And that's one reason why he's in this kind of vacuum where it's all been about parties. And and I think the real problem is his authority has gone. I mean, just talking to Tory MPs, um, ministers even, they've 
it, it, he's pretty much been written off now, uh, and it's just a question of when. I remember going to see a play a few years ago. It was Mary Stewart with um, Juliet Stevenson and Leo Williams at the Almeida. Brilliant play. And right at the beginning, they, they spun a coin and they decided who was going to play Queen Elizabeth, who was going to play Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, and depending on which way the coin fell, uh, one actress played one role, one the other. And then all the other actors on the stage turned towards the Queen. And authority is bestowed from people around a leader. They don't take authority. And the Tory MPs now are turning away from Boris Johnson. I spoke to one mm. this morning um, and he said, yes, I wrote, this is an MP, he hasn't been on the radio at all, you know, hasn't said anything publicly. He wrote his letter on Wednesday, went to PMQs, thought, OK, I'll give it over the weekend. Um, Thursday went for a long walk with a friend in the constituency, um, talked it all over, spent Friday, Saturday and Sunday fielding emails from furious constituents. This is a leave voting constituency, a northern constituency, um, and he's going to put his letter in to the Graham Brady calling for Boris Johnson to go this week. So that's somebody who you hasn't said that publicly, and he said there's lots of uh, colleagues are in the same position, and a minister had said to him, can I put my letter in anonymously? You know, the, that if authority has evaporated. That's the uh, that that is the problem, isn't it, Libby? That once authority goes, I mean, even even if you know there is this, it does feel like there was a huge surge of anger at the end of last week. This is a new week, and he's got through to Monday, and there wasn't anything new in the papers at the weekend. But the next time, for instance, I don't know, number ten calls an MP in to give them a dressing down for one thing or another, he's got no uh, moral authority, has it? I mean, you know, moral authority, political authority, really. Um, over his 300-odd MPs. I think that's true, but I think part of the problem is there isn't a consensus as to who they might have next. I mean, that's that's the difficulty. You know, it's, he can do all the back me or sack me he, he likes, but they have to know which of them. And I don't think any of the three or four possibles really have got a consensus either with the nation or though it's not my speciality with the party i mean i i'm rachel will know better than me you know who who is who is the coming the coming person but i just can't see it i mean i think it's it's rather wonderful that uh, three of them are uh, people of color and and one is a woman i think that's quite exciting that the tory party is <laughs> very different to how mm. it used to be but i you know I, I just i don't know i mean rachel do do you think do you think they know who? No, and there is a worry. I, I mean, one MP said to me, it's all about stop trust now. So they're worried that if they get rid of Boris Johnson, there'll be Liz Truss will take over and there'll be even more um, hair raising as they see it. Um, but I think the problem is that what a lot of MPs feel now is that Boris Johnson's personal problems with the parties is starting to really retoxify the conservative brand because it plays into mm. all those kind of old worries about are the Tories the party of the rich are they a sort of elite party one rule for them one more rule for the rest of us um so the parties they do i do think they expose a wider character flaw in Boris Johnson himself. But what a lot of MPs are worrying is that they're also then dragging the whole party into the mire because it just reminds everyone of what they don't like about the Tory party. 
Yes, even even the people who really hate the Prime Minister, who really hate Boris, uh, tend also to say, but what about all those disgusting, horrible right-wing Tories who are trying to <laughs> get rid of him? You know, that... <laughs> <laughs> it's a plague on both their houses, really. Um, and all Keir Starmer can do is sort of stand there with a halo on uh, for as long as possible and see what happens. I suppose happens. That's, that's the thing that if you, in way back in um, 2019, when it became clear that Theresa May couldn't do anything on Brexit, she, she was so mired in, in the mess of Brexit, she couldn't get anything through. And actually, the people who wanted her out uh, in order to get Brexit through were actually in tune with a large part of the public by that point, who were just fed up with this and wanted something to change. Uh, was what we have now, Rachel, is this weird thing where the people who are most cross with uh, Boris Johnson aren't the people who agree with him on Brexit necessarily, the people who've never really uh, liked him. But then the, the alternative is someone like Liz Truss, who's even more, you know, her libertarian, low-tax, dressing-up-his-Margaret Thatcher routine, um, it's not clear that, that that's what lots of Boris Johnson's critics want instead. And it's definitely not clear that that's what the public want when actually the yeah. sort of high tax, high spend Johnsonian economics is much more where it seems like the public are. But I think where the sort of Johnson critics do chime with the public is this sense that you can't go around ignoring the rules you can't behave as if you know the normal rules of decency or the law of the land don't apply to you and there's a something much more kind of visceral and moral about this in a way yeah. rather than what's the next ideological direction the Tory party goes in uh, in a way that's a question for the leadership contest um, and then the issue will be does the party sort of take a long hard look in the mirror and think do we want to win the next election or does it go for the ideological knee-jerk, let's make ourselves feel nice and happy in a right-wing warm bath. Um, and I think that's a question that isn't totally resolved yet. And what about the BBC, Libby? This this idea put forward by the uh, Culture Secretary, uh, Nadine Doris, saying that state-run TV has had its day, she wants to get rid of the um, the licence fee within five years, this will be the last settlement, she says, freezing it uh, at £159 a year until April 2024, which is obviously given inflation as a real terms cut. Um, is this the right battle for the, for the government to be picking right now, do you think? No, it's a spiteful, snarling sort of battle. But, I mean, we do all know, and everyone knows, something has to be done. You can't have a tax on ownership of a television, really. Um, even Tony Hall, the former and not very good DG, says so. Uh, I don't think there's anything constructive in what Doris is saying at all. Um, you know, I think it's about actually kind of sort of spiteful and partisan and daft. Uh, but I do wish the present Director General, Tim Davey, would step up very, very clearly with his finance people to decide and spell out exactly what, under the new level of licence fee, he can keep and what would go. Just tell us what would go. Because the BBC is massively spread in all sorts of directions, from, you know, local radio to podcasts to online stuff. Enormous staff, some of it massively overpaid, a lot of it massively overmanaged. He needs to stand up and say, OK, so that's the money. Right, this is what we're going to do with it. And I think there would be real interest there. Um, we don't get that. We always get vows, but, uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on the same. And often it impoverishes the best bits of it, which, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to have to say it here, uh, things like Radio 4 get more and more impoverished by every cut. <laughs> 
Good. I know you're very. I know you're very rich, Matt. I mean, I I know you're on two million a year. Uh, is it is it per program? I mean, no, the Times yes, exactly. Radio just throws yeah, yeah, yeah. money around. Just, there's obviously, money around all the time. It's all tough. Um, <laughs> but I suppose that's the point, isn't it, um, uh, Rachel? That uh, if if there was a genuine conversation about the BBC, we've been around this block many times before. The BBC's expansion into online news in direct competition with local newspapers and national newspapers. The expansion into podcasts in direct competition with loads of, you know, things that the public service broadcasters, TV and radio, were not necessarily set out to do. Mm. That's not apparently the debate that Nadine Doris wants. This just seems to be, they've been really horrible to Boris Johnson, so we're going to cut their money. (laughs) Exactly. And it just looks so petty, I think, that kind of culture war language. And also just very trivial compared to the huge issues that are going on. I mean, I just thought it was extraordinary when you hear um, Nadim Zahawi, the Education Secretary, interviewed this morning. He he didn't even have time to talk about education. He was so busy dealing with, you know, what was going to happen to the BBC, what was going to happen with the parties. You know, it just seems that the whole government's got whipped up in these really trivial, you know, sc- scandal questions and then trivial, um, you know, red meat policies to deal with the scandal questions. Uh, and it just, this just is pathetic, really. Yes, yes, and I think it's about the best people who who agree with that without um, extolling the virtues of, of the BBC. Uh, just finally, uh, Libby, um, your column today, and uh, this 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 uh, this is really interesting. The difference between facts and feelings, and how we get them all all modelled up. And actually, if you just believe something really really hard, like for instance, an election was stolen from you, um, uh, then it must be true. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was just fascinated by this, this little survey done by a couple of universities about the changing use of words. Between 1850, right, mid-Victorian, you know, Industrial Revolution just gearing up, suddenly the use of words about sentiments like feel and believe and compassion and spiritual started to decline in favour of lots of technical and scientific terms like experiment, cost, determine, conclusion. And then after 1980, 130 years later, that reversed and change accelerated very quickly, especially especially in the last uh, decade or so, uh, so that words about argument and deduction fell in favour of people using words both in fiction and non-fiction, you know, about sort of warmth and feeling and compassion and spirituality. So I just kind of amused myself by attaching (laughs) that to present surroundings. Some of these jury verdicts, you know, these wonderful old clerics who were compelled by faith to um, glue themselves to trains um, which were actually electric, <laughs> low emission, <laughs> or, or the Colston statue topplers, or this whole thing of people starting to get keen on Gwyneth Paltrow and other people who wish to steam your undercarriage to uh, release stored emotions. <laughs> I just, I just found it quite fun to to write about the t- the age. Have we actually gone into an age of touchy feely? You know, in revolution against technology and the industrial revolution. You can't draw any firm conclusions from it, but but believe me, it's quite fun to do. It was. It's a really, really fun piece. It's a really, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground from Boris Johnson just steaming you under carriage. Uh, <laughs> send your jokes into the usual address. Libby Purvis and Rachel Summers there. Of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're talking science. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Nobody said it was Yeah, Jonathan Van Tam is going back to the start, back to his microscope, announcing he's standing down as the government's chief medical officer to return to academia. He'd been at the forefront of the government's attempts to get the COVID messaging across to everyone at home during lockdowns and then when restrictions have been eased. But what, is, what has it been like being a scientist during the pandemic? They've gone from being quite rare in the public eye to being better known than most cabinet ministers. Later, we'll hear from two scientists who are on the front lines of the media during the pandemic. But first, I caught up with an organisation that tries to bridge the gap between the sci- between science and the public. The Science Media Centre is an independent press office for science. has been running for 20 years, born out of earlier attempts to try and uh, improve public understanding of science. After the extraordinary demand for science, uh, scientific voices over the last two years, I spoke to Fiona Fox, the chief executive of the Science Media Centre, about just how much demand there have been for scientific voices over the past couple of years. We have always been an organisation like a newsroom that pumps out good, accurate science into the news media um, and and very productive. So for us to be five times as busy um, was a a humongous growth in our output. So, So whereas we might do one press briefing a week in the past, we were doing three or four press briefings a day absolutely standard day um, with new data coming out, a new preprint on, you know, transmission in schools, followed by more evidence on face masks or whatever. We were getting the scientists to jump on a press conference and inviting the science and health journalists to attend. So, yeah, it was that that bit was phenomenal. And what impact has this had on the scientists themselves? Because phenomenally busier than previously and more high profile, too, but also quite often the subjects that they were discussing, they may not have found them controversial, but it became a subject of controversy. You know, if you're advocating lockdowns or restrictions on on freedom or medical interventions and so on, that's very different to maybe in the past when you might have been discussing a peer-reviewed science paper, which might yeah. have been uncontroversial. What impact has that had on those scientists 
a, a higher public profile, but also more controversy? So I think let's let's go for the positive first. And I do think that's the standout. It's not that I'm just being glass half full. I think for the vast majority of scientists who decided at some level that they were going to spend this pandemic doing science, so gathering the data and, and working out answers to, to the big questions, and communicating that to the public. So to an extraordinary level, the best scientists felt that they had to do both. Now, that I, I feel like I could move on from the SMC tomorrow and I'd have achieved my goals because that wasn't happening. The really good scientists back in 2002 had a sniffy attitude to public engagement and saw it as something that young enthusiasts for public engagement did, you know, went to science festivals. And meanwhile, we're in the laboratory doing these serious experiments and running clinical trials and we can't be bothered with any of that that did not happen so just to give one one or two examples Sarah Gilbert um, who was designing the vaccine the Oxford um, AstraZeneca vaccine was seeing the need to speak to the public about it and I think we must have done about eight press conferences with Sarah and her colleagues about their phase one their phase two their phase three various aspects so they felt the need to engage with the public another example is the recovery team that have been um, delivered as evidence that we needed on all of these antivirals and which drugs work and which what drugs don't very important hydroxychloroquine doesn't work and we found that out because of this UK clinical trial called recovery Peter Horby and Martin Landre you know they're not junior partners they run it they are incredibly busy but they were constantly talking to journalists so I really want to flag that because that felt new that that scientists at some level understood that to be a great scientist to be an effective scientist you need to do the science and you need to explain it to the public and policymakers. big tick there um, your other point is you know it, 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 in in a way a pandemic isn't a controversy like i don't know um, e-cigarettes or statins do they work but it, everything became politicized because it's such a huge issue and it's a government have to take actions like the restrictions you mentioned so yeah i think another aspect of this that's less positive is that scientists who felt like they were doing this you know as I say talking to the public about their science also found themselves attacked from from all sides by politicians I mean we can see with the modelers these epidemiological modelers who no one had ever thought about ever heard of um, and now they are the target I can't tell you how many columns I read on a daily basis um, being rude about modelers you know these doomsters these fear mongers they exaggerate all the time um it's 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 um it's just extremely unfair but it's also a misunderstanding um of the way modelers worked and they're not used to that they're not used to anyone caring about them um never mind hating them so i think that's tough you know but but most of them have been determined to stay in the game um one of the issues i think where people have literally stepped back is the whole was it natural origins or was it lab leak um, that's become another particularly toxic one. And I, I find it hard to get scientists to to answer questions from journalists about that because it's just so polarised. But I, I just want to stress that most of them don't walk away because of that. There was a survey that I, I saw at the end of uh, last year, I think, by Nature magazine. They spoke to 321 scientists. 15% said they'd received death threats. 22% said they'd received uh, been threatened with physical or sexual violence as a result of talking about the pandemic. Does that chime with, with the situation you've 
come across? Yeah, well, um, we actually ended up being heavily involved in that nature survey. Um, it was based on one that our the Science Media Centre in Australia had done. They picked up on that and then all of the Science Media Centres, we've got them all over the world, um, sent the survey questions out. So, yes, we were already aware of that. It kind of, um, uh, you know, again, just to be positive, there were also questions on that survey about has it stopped you from engaging with the public? Um, it has stopped some people and, and that really makes it an issue for the Science Media Centre. Any barriers that stop scientists speaking to the public um, are, are a major issue for us because we really do believe passionately that the public benefits from access to the best scientists. So anything that rules out even a small 10-15% of people who take themselves out of the media because of this. In terms of examples, honestly, I, I couldn't say them on radio. I mean, I've seen the emails, um, you know, the C word, the F word, just, just very, very vile email and this is emails it's not just um you know the, the option of coming off twitter if people are horrible about you on twitter these are direct emails to named scientists um abusive yeah death threats etc it's really horrible i just do want to emphasize that it's really horrible but it's it's not just scientists who are getting this anyone in public life now lives with this when i've had this conversation with mps because obviously they get a you know an enormous amount of abuse and so on and threats then in the real world, they've had to take measures, whether that's, you know, changing their routine, protecting their homes, protecting their workplace. Is that the sort of advice that scientists are now having, high profile scientists at least? Are you aware that they're having to, I don't know, install extra security, change the way they live their lives as a result of the threats that they receive? I think a, a very, very small percentage are in that. Boat. And remember that this is not totally new to us in COVID. One of the reasons we were set up was because of the animal rights extremists who were intimidating and, and threatening um, scientists using animals in their research. So, so and, and many of them had panic buttons in their house. Many of them um, had visits from the police about how they could protect themselves. So it's not new, I'm afraid. And there are other issues, um, the whole um, chronic fatigue syndrome um, issue where, where people, uh, scientists... Um, advocating psychological therapies have been threatened as well. So it's not new. Um, there are a tiny percentage who get to the stage where they have panic buttons and police advising them to avoid certain behaviours. The vast majority, it's abusive emails, and mostly they work out ways of living with that. Some of them come off Twitter. Um, I think the ones I really worry about are, are not the ones that have changed their lifestyle or are afraid of physical attack um, that I, I, I kind of more worry about the larger number who are just great scientists. I want to emphasize that there's some fantastic scientists out there doing some of the best quality research. And they just say, I, I could do without this. I'm not going to do media. And that that just I just really get sad about that because I know that that's not in anybody's interest. It's not in the public interest for a percentage of scientists to just think, who needs this? I'm just going to go back to my lab. I'm going to do my research um, and I'm going to quietly put it out there through peer reviewed journals. But I'm not going to speak to the public because I, I just don't want to invite this kind of abuse. Um, Have you come across any cases of scientists sort of going even further and say, well, I'm going to I'm going to sort of quit altogether I can't I can't deal with this anymore and, and quitting science is that a risk there have been on certain of those issues there have definitely been not not on COVID that I'm aware of but there have certainly been scientists who have moved out of one field of research 
and taken up another because that field of research has become a lightning rod for this kind of abuse. The other thing is, of course, people don't enter that field. That's the unknown, isn't it? If, if there are people who, who wanted to, you know, this, this natural origins versus lab leak, it's a very important scientific question. Um, we do need to know which of those, if possible, uh, the pandemic came from in order to put the right measures in place to reduce the risks in future. So these are important scientific questions. I now, right now, I have no evidence for this, but I'm going to say it. I don't think there are many scientists who would want to throw themselves into researching this question based on the national discussion of it. I think they would find something um, nicer and more enjoyable to research. And that is bad for us all as well. Obviously, one of the things we've seen in the last uh, two years is is scientists have become not just sort of high profile spokespeople, but celebrities to some extent too. You know, Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance, uh, Jonathan Van Tam, Sarah Gilbert, as you mentioned, um, are household names, better known actually than some of the the, the cabinet ministers uh, running the country. Do you think and uh, they've had enough support? Do you think they've, you know, we've seen terrible instances of, you know, Chris Whitty being harangued in the street and that sort of thing. That's not what he signed up for when he was became chief medical officer. Do you think we need to rethink the way that we treat senior scientists who have become incredibly well-known faces? I think I'm feeling more positive about these things. I think the, you know, the um, celebrity status of people like Chris Whitty um, come the most phenomenal percentage of public trust. You know, politicians would kill for this. I think politicians are down there, probably even more so today. Um, you know, they're, they're like 15, 20 percent uh, public support. And, and the Chris Whitties of this world, medical doctors, research scientists are up there in the, you know, mid to high 80s. And by the way, it's gone up. The Wellcome Trust have done a global survey of public trust in scientists through covid and it's gone from the kind of early 80s to even higher 80s so um, and again you know a couple of people have said to me don't you think scientists have made themselves unpopular in this and that absolutely is not my take i think the the respect for and the trust in science um has has remained either steady or gone up during this pandemic so and of course you know that wouldn't have been the case if they hadn't been as visible so i don't want to conclude that that scientists becoming visible and 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 having their say and using their voice to good effect like these high profile scientists like jonathan van tam patrick and chris and sarah gilbert is something that we should kind of fix i don't want it fixed i think it's been amazing one thing i would say is that i do hope and I know for a fact <laughs> that people like Chris Whitty and Sarah Gilbert hope they can go back to their labs after this. I mean, that I don't, I mean, there will be exceptions. I'm sure there'll be exceptions of scientists enjoying celebrity status. Um, but the vast majority of scientists I, I know do not. They are prepared to do it for the public interest and for the pandemic. I think as a society, we should, um, we should not be asking scientists to be celebrities. And I urge those scientists who quite enjoy the media limelight to, to just question whether that is the right thing. Scientists, you know, what, what different, what, what distinguishes scientists from columnists and politicians and all of those people that we hear from on a daily basis is that they bring the data, they bring the evidence, they don't bring an opinion they bring their experiment and the findings of it. And, and to do that, you need to do put the work in and not be in TV and radio studios. <laughs> that sounds like you don't expect to see Neil Ferguson or Jonathan Van Tam on Strictly <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> well, I really hope not. 
Although JVT, I think, come on, he, that would be good fun. <laughs> Fiona, it's really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for, for spending some time with Fiona Fox uh, speaking to Times Radio. Very good morning to you, Matt Chilly, with you until one o'clock. We're talking about scientists and how they've coped in the past two years. Uh, a moment ago, we heard from Fiona Fox, the chief executive of the, social, of the Science Media Centre, which acts as a press office for scientists. Let's now speak to Professor Linda Bold, Professor of Public Health at the University of Edinburgh, a regular on uh, Times Radio. Morning, Linda. Morning. Uh, we've also got some, got some Mark Walport, former go- uh, government chief scientific advisor, sits on the SAGE advisory group to the government as well. Hi, Mark. Morning. Hi. Linda, what has it been like? Because um, you're, you know, you're regular on Times Radio. I see you on the telly too. Um, have you enjoyed the exposure that the pandemic has brought to the work that you've been doing for a long time anyway? Um, I think it's been, I, I feel it's, it's a contribution. So I made a very conscious choice back in the spring of 2020, given I'd done media work for a long period. I was a spokesperson for Cancer Research UK on cancer prevention. And I worked on nicotine and tobacco, alcohol and diet, which are issues in public health that, you know, the media is interested in. So I had this experience for many years, not nearly as frequent. And so I thought, well, I can probably contribute by helping the public to understand what's going on. And also because I wasn't, um, you know, at the front line, I wasn't working in the lab as other public health scientists were. My work is largely with humans. It's uh, behavioral science research. And a lot of my studies had to pause, actually, because we just couldn't interview people or, or for example, take saliva samples in hospital, which, which we do for a number of our studies. Um, so it was it was a conscious choice. I wouldn't say I've enjoyed it. I think it's been um, it, it slowed down a lot. Recently, I've taken on a government advisor role with the Scottish government. But for the period between March 2020 and the summer of last year, it was absolutely relentless and it was really exhausting. I had very very, very little time off doing this on top of the day job. Um, but it, it was something I felt I needed to do and, and that I had, you know, the experience to assist in that way. So that was the choice. Um, and what's, what's been the reaction? Because I mean, I suppose it's one thing, if you if you previously had popped up to talk about a, a public health matter, you know, how to tackle obesity, even there was a bit of reaction to that, the next day, the media moves on you move on what how have you received i don't know if you're on social media but what's been the sort of the reaction from the public and how have you coped with that because obviously when you when you train uh, as a professor of public health that's not the you're not expecting to suddenly have you know everyone in the country have an opinion on you and what you'll say no, that's right. Now, I did have some experience working on e-cigarettes and tobacco and oh, dealing with yes. the tobacco industry. So I I had years. I mean, I was a UK government scientific advisor on tobacco control, and I had a report written uh, rubbishing my research called The Bald Truth, which is my last name, and, you know, FOIs. And I, so that's a tricky area to work in. So I brought that with me, and I actually think that was incredibly valuable. But it is different this time because of the recognition. I mean, I'm in Scotland. It's small. I get recognised in the streets. I'm sure Mark has the same experience with me. I get emails almost every day from members of the public, most of them with really good questions I try to answer, but some of them absolutely horrific things. I was just looking when I was listening there to Fiona at some of the messages I've received. And then the social media, um, you know, it can be very, very difficult. I only really use Twitter. I'm still on there, but I'm, I try to be very neutral and keep it pretty minimum. So, and some of my colleagues have experienced a lot worse. So it has been nasty. And I, I think that, um, you know, in this day and age where we're using so much online interaction and people are anonymous, it's much worse probably than what I'd experienced in the past. Um, 
And uh, let's bring Mark in here then. Uh, Mark, uh, what's been your experience? The same as, as Linda, really. What, uh, how have you found, you know, we've spoken not quite once a week for the past two years, but does, not far off because you've sort of brought your, your, advice, uh, your experience to it. I mean, clearly your time as chief scientific advisor, nothing like what, what Sir Patrick Valance has been through in terms of media profile. What's been your experience? No, that's absolutely right. I mean, I'd say my experience was very similar to Linda's in a way, in that uh, through the jobs I've done in the past as director of the Wellcome Trust and then as the government chief scientific advisor, I've been quite heavily involved in public communication about some quite contentious issues. So animal research, embryo research, uh, bovine tuberculosis, the use of pesticides. Um, And science communication, when it's about subjects that clash with people's values or affects the way people uh, might have to live their lives, does become quite contentious. Um, And I suppose it was obvious at the start of the pandemic that science communication was going to be very important and remains so. And it's actually quite extraordinary, the level of scientific discourse that there has been over the last couple of years, reflecting how important science is to our understanding and the management of the pandemic. But I think it's important that people do communicate, scientists do communicate clearly. Um, And like Linda, it's not something that I actively enjoy or relish, but I think it's an important thing to do. Um, And I mean, I think one of the really difficult issues has been communicating uncertainty, because throughout the pandemic, there's been enormous uncertainty. So at the start of the Omicron wave of the pandemic, we simply didn't know how serious it was going to be in terms of its clinical impacts. We didn't know the scale. It seemed very likely that it would be very large. And I think one of the challenges talking to the media is you tend to have rather a short slot. This is a bit luxurious to have a bit longer. And so... (laughs) Uncertainty tends sometimes to be framed in the media as you bring on two scientists who have uh, apparently different opinions. And I don't think that's the best way of framing it. I mean, uncertainty is just that. There's a range of possibilities. Actually, do you think that actually we've all been through that um, process, uh, Linda? In the beginning, there was lots of talk of following the science as if there was one... only one option. Uh, And actually, maybe the entire country, I suppose at that point as well, a slightly panicked country just really wanted there to be an answer if we just did that thing, that this awful thing would go away. Actually, now, the sort of science literacy of uh, probably politicians, the media and the public more generally has improved and realises there are trade-offs and somebody who's an expert in public health might take this view, someone looking at the economy will take another view. You know, politicians then have to sort of mould all that together. Do you think we've, we've all matured a bit since those early days of the pandemic, Linda? I think uh, conveying uncertainty is difficult. And and Mark and I both know from the previous um, areas we've worked in that there's always disagreement. And that's what scientists do. And it's healthy. So I think there is science literacy, I think, has improved in some groups because there is still a big digital divide and and huge inequalities. But it has improved. And, you know, day to day terminology that we use in public health is now widely understood, you know, terms that people (laughs) had never come across before. Um, but I think it's still difficult. Every Almost every single interview I do, and this is particularly the case now, actually, I'm sure Mark's experience is similar. We're asked what we think is going to happen next mm. or, you know, what, what is a definitive answer? And, and we simply don't have it. And I owe a huge debt of gratitude to the Science Media Centre. Good to hear from Fiona there. I mean, they've been absolutely phenomenal, as have other.
others in trying to, um, you know, get good information to scientists. Just very briefly, well, let me give you one example, was the issue around pediatric admissions for COVID-19 that was discussed at SAGE. You know, didn't want to alarm the public. It really, the data actually looks really reassuring. SMC had a briefing, and you can see the press coverage on that was really much more balanced than it would have been without that. So there are important actors helping all of us, and, and you know, I think that's, that's valuable. Um, just uh, finally want to ask you, you both, really, given that we heard from Fiona some of the abuse that people have had uh, uh, and, you know, clearly Jonathan Van Town's very keen to, to step back and go back to his, his day job. Do you think that, that what's happened the past two years will encourage more people to come forward as scientists or, or might it uh, put them off? You first, Mark Walpole. Um, I think people will be encouraged overall. I mean, I think a lot of scientists have really stepped up to the plate. And actually, I want to pay tribute to the professional science journalists, who I think have done an extraordinary job um, in both the written and the broadcast media. The quality of the science reporting on the whole has been extremely high. Um, But I think there is no doubt that um, science, you know, if you're presenting the Higgs boson, uh, that uh, gets public acceptance. No one gets any abuse. It's usually one physicist abuses another for not having communicated. <laughs> um, but the second you get onto the topics that do affect values, and climate change actually is another one where scientists have come in from a remarkable amount of abuse. Um, but I think I'd also turn on something that Fiona said, which is that science is about providing the evidence. When it comes to what we should do about it, then everyone really has an equal voice. And in a democratic society, it's the politicians we've elected. Um, and so I think it's, uh, it's it, scientists are at their strongest when they're talking about the evidence. And then when they are giving their personal opinions, it needs to be clear that that's what they are. And yeah. that just because they're scientists doesn't give them a privileged position that they know better than everyone else. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think people will continue. Yeah, I think people will. It's a good question. People will continue to come forward. Not all of them, but I'm particularly interested in more representation from women and other groups in the media. And you can see many media outlets have stepped up to provide training and they want to hear from more scientists, more more people who are working in in clinical medicine and other fields. And so I think. What I discuss with the, the colleagues in my team or younger colleagues, particularly women, actually, is, you know, it's not for everyone. But if you want to integrate it into your work, recognize, as Fiona says, that your day job is to do the science, do the research. <laughs> but if you can do this as well and you can do it well, it will actually benefit, you know, your um, your networks, the experience you have and the contribution that you make um, to not just science, but policy and practice. And I think I hope more people will will continue to do that in the future. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.